Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Well, good evening. Let me invite you to take your Bible and join me in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. And we're going to give our attention to verses 7 through 13 this evening. Mark, chapter 6, verse 7 through 13, Advance the Kingdom. Uh, text is really quite appropriate in light of our pastor's challenge for us to go out and invite people to be here on Easter uh, so that they will hear the gospel and so that their lives might be transformed uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, even with the popularity of Jesus, he did not just sit back and let people come to him. But as we're going to see uh, tonight, after having mentored the disciples for quite some time, probably at least a year, if not a year and a half by now, he now sends them out to advance the kingdom and to multiply the ministry. And so in chapter 6, the last part of verse 6 actually leads into verse 7 quite well. It's what we call a hinge verse. And he went about among the villages teaching. And, of course, this is right after his rejection by his hometown of Nazareth. So he went out among the villages teaching, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Uh, he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, say, uh, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and uh, healed them. Those of us who follow Jesus have the amazing honor and privilege of extending his kingdom. We actually share in what he is doing in extending the kingdom and touching lives around the world. It's a tremendous privilege, and it's also a great responsibility. And when you look at the Word of God, there's some very specific guidelines that indeed are to be followed when it comes to advancing his kingdom. First of all, he's the one who calls us to go. And we simply obey, period. No debate, no questions, no discussion. He's the commander-in-chief. We are his loyal soldiers. He says go, we go. He says where, we go there. Secondly, he also sends us out, as this text says, with his authority in on-the-job training. And the Lord Jesus understood that you do uh, best and you learn best not only by hearing it, and not only by seeing it, but actually by doing it as well. And then thirdly, we actually do continue and extend the ministry of Jesus as we preach the gospel and minister to the hurting. You see this balance again between preaching and ministering, preaching and ministering. Ministering gives authenticity to what we're doing, but people are not saved simply by you extending to them a gracious hand, giving them something to eat and some water to drink. No, they are only saved when they hear the preaching of the gospel. 
Now, the text that we have before us, as I mentioned a moment ago, is in a very tragic section of the Bible. Uh, we're going to see, following this text, the murder, uh, the assassination, the martyrdom of John the Baptist. One of the saddest texts in all the Bible. We've just moved through uh, Mark 6, 1 through 6, where Jesus went back home and was rejected for a second time by his own hometown of Nazareth. That experience then will impact the council uh, that he gives his 12 disciples as they go on their evangelistic mission assignment as well. And so leaving Nazareth, uh, as we see there in verse 6, Jesus moves on to other villages where it says he continues his teaching ministry. And he says, you know, he may be disappointed, uh, as all of us will be from time to time, in how some people respond to us. But even if we're rejected, even if those who know us best say no, we're not to be deterred from the mission assignment that he has given us. And Jesus himself would not be deterred from fulfilling the will of his father in preaching the gospel and going to Calvary and dying on the cross. And so after discipling, and mentoring the twelve for an extended period of time, basically it's now time for them to get their feet wet. It's now time for them to engage in on-the-job training. Their, their apprenticeship, if you like, is now ready to go to the next level. Now, need to be very clear as we move into these verses. All aspects of their training and their instruction would not apply to you and me today. And I'll try to make that clear where that is the case. Yet, in spite of that, there are some significant principles uh, that are true for you and me today, uh, that you and I should follow and implement today. And I've tried to put that in the basic outline of our study this evening. And so we'll try to note the things that were particular and specific to this mission assignment, but then also note those things that we should be sensitive to as we join hands with Jesus in extending his kingdom. So the first principle I think that is true anywhere, anyplace, anytime is we go with Jesus' authority and wisely as a team. Verse 7, he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He, he calls the twelve, the twelve disciples that he has called to himself, and he sends them out. The, the Greek word there is apostello. Uh, we get our English word apostle from it. It's the verbal form. So he sends them out as apostles, literally duo duo. Two by two. In fact, I playfully say this is the first true dynamic duos that we ever come across in history. And so Jesus sends them out, first of all, as a team. And he does it, I think, for at least two particular reasons. Number one, uh, it's safer. It's wiser uh, to go as a team and work together. In fact, lone rangers, if Tonto is not with them, are easy targets to pick off. And as Ecclesiastes 4.9 says, two are better than one. So he sends them out as a team. He calls it safe. It's wise. When we, for example, go out into the community and knock on doors, when we go out and share the gospel, uh, usually we go at least in a team of two, maybe three, but it's seldom that we go out by ourselves. And there's wisdom in going as a team. Secondly, uh, the law required two witnesses to verify a matter. You find that in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6, Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, even again in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 1. So he's honoring a principle found in the law. 
And he's just using good common sense in sending them out in a team. It says then also he gave them his authority. The, the word exousia, it means the right. It means the power. And he gave them authority over demons, over what is called here the unclean spirits. And so Jesus at this point in his ministry is beginning to intensify his time with the twelve. He's intensifying his instruction with the twelve. And now, amazingly, after spending a little over a year with them, he actually delegates his authority to them. They, in other words, now serve as his authorized, appointed representatives. In other words, they really are, at this point, an extension of King Jesus himself. In fact, in the ancient world, and really it's true today, as I am about to show you, uh, a man's representatives were viewed as the man himself. So when they went out in the name of Jesus, it was as if Jesus was there himself. Now, some of us tonight might say, well, that, that's not the way it works today. Oh, I beg to differ. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20 says, We are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. You are His ambassador. I am His ambassador. Now, you're either a good one or a bad one, but you are His ambassador. Furthermore, the text says in Paul, God makes His appeal to others through us. So when we go out into the world, when we're in the restaurant, when we're in the grocery store, when we're driving down the road, wherever we happen to be, we are representing the king of kings. And so they've been called as uh, fishermen of men in chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. They are those who have been set apart uniquely by Jesus to be with him, chapter 3, verse 13 through 19. And now they are ready to go out on their own in a team as an extension of their master. We go with his authority, and wisely we go as a team. Number two, general principle, go mean and lean with nothing non-essential. Go mean and lean with nothing non-essential. Now, that principle applies to you and me today. But the specifics of this verse probably do not. Look at it again, verse 8. Uh, he charged them, take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belt. So I get to take a belt. Uh, wear sandals. And do not put on two tunics. In other words, you simply go with one. Now, the fact of the matter is, the principle Jesus wishes to communicate is simply this. To be effective in God's work, we really need to go at it unencumbered. Uh, no excess baggage that could impede or slow down the mission. Furthermore, for us to be effective as we extend the gospel, especially into new areas... Uh, new areas in North America and new areas around the world like the unreached people group we saw on the screen just a moment ago. We have to go in radical faith and radical dependence on our God. Indeed, the precise instructions I said are for the twelve, but the principles are for us. And so he says, first of all, in verse 8, uh, travel light. Take nothing that is not absolutely essential. Now, let me digress for just a moment and do something on Wednesday night I would not do on Sunday morning. 
There are two parallel accounts to this story in Mark. One is found in Matthew chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, and the other is found in Luke chapter 9 and verse 3. And some of the more liberal scholars have tried to say, look, there is a contradiction between the Matthew, Mark, and Luke accounts. You say, why would they say that? Well, in, in Matthew and in Luke, the apostles are told not to take a staff or sandals, according to Matthew, and they're not to take a staff, according to Luke. And yet right here in the text, it tells them to take a staff and to wear their sandals. And so what is going on here? Uh, is there actually a contradiction or is there a way to understand this? And I think the latter is indeed the case. The, the idea is this. Don't purchase anything beyond what you already have. In other words, don't buy a, another pair of sandals. Just wear the sandals you've got. Furthermore, don't buy another staff. Just take the staff that you have yourself. Furthermore, very interestingly, Mark may have had in view what is called the shepherd's staff. That's a very precise word, and that's the word that he uses in the Greek text. So you can take a shepherd's staff that you might use for walking. But the word that appears both in Matthew and in Luke is a word that means the shepherd's club. Uh, something that you would use for protection to beat things off and, and to fight with. And so it appears that Jesus was saying, and the way they record the event, yeah, you can take the walking staff with you, but the only protection that you really need is that of the Lord. You don't need anything to defend yourself. You don't need anything to fight others off. You're going as a representative of the... Uh, king of kings, the, the one who has brought peace to this world, and therefore you're not to go in any type of protective mode. I'll never forget the fact that um, the last time Elizabeth Elliot talked to her husband Jim before he would leave uh, on a plane to go and minister among the Wadanis again and, and be murdered along with four of his uh, companions, uh, his wife Elizabeth said, Jim, you know that the... Um, that the Akas, the Wadanis, are very violent. Uh, they're known for their treachery. You have guns with you. And they did, by the way. They had rifles and they had pistols. If they attack you, will you defend yourselves? And Jim Elliott, at the age of 29, with a little girl and a wife, did not hesitate. And he said, no, we will not. And Elizabeth said, why not? And Jim Elliott said, because we're ready for heaven. And they are not. And when they were attacked, they did not defend themselves, and all five of them were brutally martyred for King Jesus. I think he was living out the principle that you have here, that you don't take anything to defend yourself. You simply go mean and lean with the bare, minimal necessities that will be necessary for you to share the gospel and extend the kingdom. In other words, <laughs> we don't go first class. And we don't make the ministry and the sharing of the gospel a means for accumulating wealth and stuff. Now, this text doesn't fit very well with the prosperity theology movement. This doesn't work well with Joel Osteen. So you shouldn't pick on him. Well, he ought to preach the gospel. If he gets the gospel right, I'll leave him alone. Till he does, I'm going to call him out as a heretic who preaches a false gospel. Anytime you add a word to the gospel, you misrepresent the gospel. It's not a prosperity gospel. It's just the gospel. 
Jesus says here, you go mean, you go lean. There's nothing about being bloated. There's nothing about accumulating things. You simply go with the bare necessities. Interestingly, the four items that he tells the twelve they can take, uh, that is the staff, the walking staff, uh, their belt, their sandals, and a single tunic is the same thing God told the Hebrews to take on their flight from Egypt, recorded in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 11. And so some Bible scholars have raised just the question, is Jesus at least intimating that now a new Exodus is underway under a much greater Moses, that prophet that Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15 through 18 promised, indeed would come. Furthermore, Is it clear that the emphasis as we go and share the gospel, as we go and extend the kingdom, is the emphasis on faith in God to provide what we need? Yes. Yes. You trust God to meet your needs in the midst of your going. And in essence, he says, I will do so. I like the way James Edwards says it in his commentary on Mark. True service service for Jesus is characterized by dependence on Jesus. And dependence on Jesus is signified by going where Jesus sins despite material shortfalls and unanswered questions. I like that. Going where Jesus sins despite material shortfalls and unanswered questions, they must trust Him alone who sends them. And so a a clear application for all of us, no matter where we happen to be, any place, any time. Little provisions do indeed require big faith in God to meet our needs. So we go with Jesus' authority and as a team, just wisdom there. We go mean and lean with nothing non-essential. And then number three, we go where we are welcomed and we move on when Rejected. Now, stay with me uh, as to what exactly that means and how we would apply that. He says there in verse 10, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, and this is very odd, isn't it? Shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Jesus has instructed them on what to take. Now he tells them where to stay and when to move on. First in verse 10, he says, when you find a receptive home, stay there until your work is done in that area. In other words, don't impose yourself on multiple homes. Don't seek out nicer, better accommodations. Once you're there, you go into somebody's house that's strictly middle class, and then the wealthy of the town found out that the, that the traveling evangelist is here, and so I want you to come stay at my house. And so you come up with some lame excuse to diss the person who opened the door to you first so you might move on to nicer, better accommodations. Jesus says, don't you do that. Don't you do that. Don't, don't, don't you be a man or woman for hire. Uh, don't you be someone that can be manipulated in that kind of a way. No, you're not in search of a five-star hotel. A Motel 6 will do just fine, and they will keep the light on. So adequacy is your goal, not comfort, uh, not plush amenities. Accept what is offered. Thank God for that. And do not dishonor the kindness of a lesser home by moving to a nicer one and thereby becoming an offense to 
the gospel. I must say to you that we've blown this many times in international mission work, many times. Several years ago, I was in a particular country. I'll leave it anonymous. We went to see the M's in the country, and they lived in the same area that all of the um, uh, different ambassadors from all the countries around the world lived in. I mean, they lived in a house about as big as that monster thing I live in over there at Magnolia Hill. And that is a monster house, by the way. I mean, that's a, I get lost in that thing. Charlotte hides from me. I can't find her when she's mad at me. So, I mean, it was just monstrous. And I'm thinking, you know, how do the common people feel about I mean, how do you relate to them? And the answer is, you don't. And at least not very well. And so Jesus says, basically, don't be aloof. Motel 6 is just fine. You don't need the Ritz-Carlton. Live among them. Be dependent upon them. Be accountable. Share life with them. Be open. Be transparent. Show integrity. And put all that together, and you lay the foundation then for them to give you a hearing when you present the gospel. But then, verse 11, and if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Now, I think you have to keep in mind that Jesus is giving them here, I'll do it through uh, multiple choice. Is Jesus instructing them here in this text, short-term mission trip, long-term mission trip? Short-term. Short-term. In other words, they are kind of, you know, in and out, in and out. They're, they're moving here, moving there, moving here, moving there. Because they're going to come back and give him a report in just a few days or a few weeks. So the principle that applies in a short-term kind of thing is not the same if you go, for example, like William Carrier, Adoniram Judson, or James Frazier, where you plant your life among a particular people group and you stay seven years before you have a single convert. That, that's a different kind of situation. So here Jesus has in mind, I believe, primarily, if not exclusively, the short-term kind of mission trip. And so he says, you go in, and if they, for whatever reason, immediately reject you, and they won't listen to you, well, don't be uh, irritating. Uh, don't try to be coercive. Uh, don't be manipulative. Move on. Move on. You're, you're going in quickly. Move on, find a receptive place, and uh, as you leave, leave a visible sign of their personal responsibility and perspective judgment by shaking off the dust from your feet. Now, you say, what is going on here? Well, several things are going on here. Number one, Jesus is telling them they should anticipate that they will be rejected by some. In fact, I'll say to you in 54 years in ministry, I've been rejected more often in sharing the gospel than I have received, at least initially, a welcome. I mean, I wish I could get up here and say, every time I share the gospel, people believe. No, most of the time I share the gospel, people don't believe. But that's not my business. I sow. Uh, I, 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 I plow the ground. God brings the harvest and the increase. Secondly, when turned away, move on, at least for now. doesn't mean you might not swing back later. You say, why would you say that? How many times did Jesus go to his hometown? Twice. Now, when they rejected him the first time, he moved on. But he did come back a second time. He did not come back a third time. I'm not saying that that means twice and you're out. I'm just simply saying that he himself came back later 
to see if things may have changed. David Brainerd, by the way, the, the great missionary among the Indians in the northeast, worked in several village areas and had absolutely no result. I mean, it went nowhere. And he was about ready to give up. He was dying of tuberculosis. He was very ill. But he swings back through again to the same people. And this time he said it was like a different day and a different people. And almost immediately they responded and believed the gospel. So you move on at least for now. When you leave, as Kent Hughes says, in a, quote, merciful prophetic act, shake off the dust from your feet to warn them of what they are rejecting. Historically, shaking the dust off one's feet was something that pious Jews did when they had traveled outside of Israel. It's kind of their way of disassociating themselves and showing their rejection of the paganism of those places and the divine judgment that would await them. And so you have a similar kind of principle here. It's not that you shake your uh, dust off your feet in some kind of rude, arrogant kind of a way, but it's a way of saying to them, uh, be careful. Uh, you're on dangerous ground. Your rejection of our message puts you in a very precarious place when it comes to the judgment of God. And so the fact of the matter is that is something of an indication for you and for me that there will be times when we go out and with a broken but honest heart have to warn others of the impending judgment of God they will experience. It's not fun. To tell people they're wrong. It's not fun to tell people you reject this message and you may die and spend eternity in a place called hell. But if you truly love them, you will, with a broken heart, tell them the truth. So we go where we are welcomed. We move on when rejected. And then number four, go preaching the word and doing the work of the kingdom. Go preaching the word and doing the work of the kingdom. The final two verses of this section. Summarize the, the specifics of the disciples' mission, and not surprising at all, it mirrors in precise detail what they had seen Jesus do. In other words, we do what He does. So, you see there in verse 12, they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. And verse 13, they cast out many demons. And they anointed with oil many who were sick, and they healed them. He says, first, they went out and preached repentance. The same message, by the way, preached both by John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. You find that in Mark chapter 1. Secondly, with the authority and the enablement of Jesus, they cast out many demons, literally demons. Many they cast out. Thirdly, they anointed with oil uh, many who were sick and healed them. And I wonder if James, the half-brother of our Lord, picked up on this when he talks about uh, ministering to those sick in the body of Christ. He says, call the elders, anoint them with oil, and the prayer of faith will save, will raise up the sick. And so there's a pattern that you find later in the book of James that is put forth right here in the Gospel of Mark as well. And so in essence, what do they do? They go as servants. They go and they're not to compromise their message, even if it brings rejection and persecution. Bottom line, Jesus says, have the courage to tell the truth. Have the courage like John the Baptist. Tell the truth. Preach the gospel. Even if it may cost you your head. Have realistic expectations. Some people will receive us, but others will reject us. 
Furthermore, when you are rejected, when you work year after year after year with somebody and the results just don't seem to be happening, uh, having a companion, uh, having a teammate can go a long ways in keeping you from becoming depressed, despondent, and walking away. I'm really thankful for the fact that we're adopting a new kind of strategy uh, in church planting, certainly here in America, and I hope in around the world as well. In fact, I think it's even more crucial outside than it is here. And that principle is we're sending teams out to plant churches. Uh, we're sending eight here, ten here, twelve here. And, and what we're finding is uh, it's more effective. And we're finding that they'll stay with the work longer if it's hard because they have encouragement. Uh, they have support. Again, that's what amazes me with some of the missionaries in earlier times. Uh, sometimes it was just a man and his wife, like Carrie and his wife, who was crazy, by the way. She tried to kill him. Fortunately, some reinforcements came in. He stayed with the work. And today, millions of believers in India. Judson and his wife, at first, out there all by themselves. Fortunately, God later brought in some encouragement, and he loses his wife, he loses a bunch of his kids, but he stays with the work. And today, more than 700,000 Baptists in Burma alone. And so I like the idea of teamwork because it is essential, I think, to more likely experiencing success in the mission. But now, decide because this text is so simple. I want to pick up on one particular phrase and develop it for just a moment with you tonight. And it is that phrase or that word, people should repent. What does the Bible mean by this word repentance? It is a reoccurring theme in the Bible, as I said a moment ago. First word out of the mouth of John the Baptist. First word out of the mouth of Jesus in his public teaching ministry. When Paul, excuse me, Peter preached his great Pentecostal sermon in Acts chapter 2, what did he say in verse 38? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, because of the remission of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so any kind of theology, and there is some out there that says repentance is not essential to salvation, they don't have a problem with me. They have a problem with Jesus, John the Baptist, and Peter, and Paul for that matter. And so what do we mean when we talk about this very important component of the gospel? Well, Thomas Watson, and you have all this in your notes, an English Puritan who lived from 1620 to 1686, wrote a wonderful book entitled The Doctrine of Repentance. He defined it this way, repentance is a grace of God's Spirit, whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled, and visibly reformed. I would prefer the word transformed, but I know what he means by it. It is a grace of God's Spirit. You are inwardly humbled by your sin. And God does His work in your life so that you are visibly reformed, transformed. Now, Watson then in this wonderful work went on to say there are at least six ingredients that he finds in the Bible for true repentance. I note them for you tonight. Very quickly. The first is what he called the sight of sin, whereby a person comes to himself and clearly views his lifestyle as sinful. Indeed, he says, if we fail to see our sin, we are rarely motivated to repent. You need the bright light of God's Word to show you your sin. By the way, you can be dirty as a pig in the dark and nobody knows. Put the bright light on it. But the kind of light they use in a hospital operating room, and suddenly you don't look so clean anymore, do you? 
Put the light of God's word on your heart and on your soul and on your life, and it will show you your sin. You'll, you'll see things that in the past, I didn't think that was all that wrong, and now I, I'm, I'm just absolutely scandalized by how ugly and dirty I am as a sinner. Secondly, as true ingredients for uh, repentance is sorrow for sin. He says we need to feel, I love this statement, we need to feel the nails of the cross in our soul as we sin. Repentance then includes godly grief, holy agony. The fruits of repentance show genuine anguishing sorrow over sin and not just the consequences of it. Sorrow for sin is seen in the ongoing actions it produces. In other words, I'll just be specific. Somebody comes to me that's uh, guilty of, uh, of infidelity. And uh, they tell me, well, I'm sorry, I repented. Uh, let's move on. I'm like, no, time out. Uh, you are, are guilty of infidelity. You did divorce your mate, and you're now remarried. And you're genuinely sorry for what you did. Yeah, I'm genuinely sorry. Well, then, here's what I'd like to see us do. Number one, I want to go with you to see your wife, and I want to see you apologize to her and, and ask for her forgiveness. Then secondly... I want you to go to your children, and I want to be with you, and I want to see you apologize to your children and ask for their forgiveness. And then thirdly, I want to go with you back to the church that you left when you committed your act of adultery. And I want you to, and I'll work with you on this, to get the pastor to let you on a Sunday come up standing right here and say to the entire congregation, I have sinned against God and I have sinned against you and what I did was wrong and I grieve over it. I'm heartbroken over it. I am sorry. I have no excuse and I plead with you all to forgive me. Now I'll actually begin to think maybe you're serious about it. You say, have you ever had anybody willing to do that? Very few. They'll, they'll tend to about 50 for 50 percent of the time be willing to go see the the wife and the kids but when i tell them they need to go back to their church that they wronged and stand up before the whole congregation and confess naturally it's, it's amazing they want to suddenly draw a line and you know what you're not going to draw a line on true repentance you'll go as far as you need to go to make things right by the way i would never let someone join our church that was guilty of adultery until they had done all of those particular things. They could attend till Jesus comes again or they die. But I would not allow them to join our church because they are in a state of unrepentant sin and they ought not to be allowed the membership. Church, church, church membership is not your right. It is a privilege. And we ought to care enough about it that we discipline our members when they sin in that kind of egregious kind of a way. No, that sorrow is seen in ongoing actions it produces. Number three is confession of sin. The humble sinner voluntarily passes judgment on himself as he sincerely admits to the specific sins of his heart and life. At least seven benefits of confession are found in Scripture 1. Confession of sin gives glory to God. Two, confession of sin is a means to humble the soul. Three, confession of sin gives release to a troubled heart. That's for sure. Four, confession of sin purges out sin. Augustine or Augustine called it the expeller of vice. Confession of sin then endears Christ to the soul that needs atoning. Fifthly, confession of sin makes way for forgiveness. Sixth, confession of sin makes way for mercy. 
Fourth ingredient of repentance, shame for sin. The color of repentance is blushing red. What a great way to say it. The color of repentance is blushing red. It causes a holy embarrassment. Ezra 9, 6. Oh, my God, I am ashamed. And I blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. That's a good way to pray when you've been convicted with your sin. Indeed, the repenting prodigal was so ashamed of his sin that he did not feel he deserved to be a son anymore. No sin makes us, I love this, the Puritans knew how to say it, sin makes us shamefully naked. It exposes us. Fifth, the fifth ingredient in repentance is hatred of sin. We must hate our sin to the core. We hate sin more deeply when we love Jesus more fully. I love that. Repentance begins in the heart uh, and begins in the love of God and ends in the hatred of sin. Thus, tolerating sin is a willful step toward committing it. True repentance loathes sin deeply. Six, the sixth progressive ingredient of repentance is turning from sin and returning to the Lord, as Joel 2.12 says, with all your heart. This turning from sin implies a notable change, what the Bible calls performing deeds in keeping with repentance, Acts 26, 20. Thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations, Ezekiel 14, 6. Thus we are called to turn away from all our abominations, not just the obvious ones. Repentance, most importantly, then, is not just a turning away from sin, but also a turning in repentance toward God and a faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 20, 21. Thus we should repent of our doubt by believing in the goodness, the greatness, and the graciousness of God and to turn in faith for freedom in the gospel. Here, then, is the joy we have in repentance. It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And we rejoice that Christ has done so much for us and continues to do for us as well. So how might we pray? Lord, I am an adopted child, not a slave to sin. I am accepted because of Christ. I have forgotten how loved, secure, rich, and free I am in Christ. Please let me be astonished by your love. And in the process... Help me to hate my sin. I conclude tonight. It is interesting to note that the uh, mission of the twelve sandwiches or brackets, if you like, a very interesting and tragic event in biblical history, that being the beheading of John the Baptist. In other words, 7 through 13 comes before the beheading of John. And verses 30 and 31 and 32 come after the beheading of John. Now, why would Mark do this? Why would Mark bracket this teaching uh, mission of the disciples? Why would he use those as brackets or, or bookends, if you like, of this tragic story about John the Baptist? And I'm going to add some more reasons when we look at that text, but I think at least in part he's telling us the kingdom advances mysteriously even in the midst of rejection and even in the midst of the death of God's choicest servants. 
In other words, let's read that application back into our text this evening. We go as a team and we may suffer and die as a team. We go with very little and even what we have may be taken away. Some will welcome us, but others will not only reject us, they will indeed try to destroy us. And preaching the word and helping others may not result in our praise. It may actually result in our death. That was the fate of John. That was the destiny of Jesus. That was what happened to the twelve minus the apostle John. And like a Jim Elliott and a Bill Wallace, it could be your fate as well. It could be mine. But then what did Jesus say in John 15, 18? If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And again in Matthew 10, 24, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. So as we advance the kingdom of King Jesus, if we are rejected, if we are persecuted as we go and preach and minister, may God be so kind as to give us the heart of the apostles. Who in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, it says, They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. So yes, carry His name and you may suffer shame. You may even suffer pain. You may even suffer the loss of life. But never forget the great gain that is promised to all of us who faithfully love and serve King Jesus until the end. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you give White Crossroads Baptist Church the honor and privilege of advancing your kingdom. And Lord, I pray that we would be faithful on this corner to continue to do that until we're in your presence, until you come again. And Lord, I pray that we will be faithful to advance your kingdom here in Raleigh, and in Wake Forest and Youngsville and the surrounding areas. Help us, Lord, also to be faithful in advancing your kingdom across the state of North Carolina. And indeed, Lord, help us to be involved in advancing your kingdom across North America. But, Lord, let us not stop there. And I thank you for this church that has such a mission's heart. May we be faithful by our giving, by our praying, by our going, by our sending, that we would advance the gospel around the world especially among the 6,800 unreached people groups that are yet to hear the name of Jesus. And Lord, we may be rejected. We may even suffer loss of life. But may we claim with Paul this evening the wonderful truth. And for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Either way I win in King Jesus. We make our prayer in His name. Amen and amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work 
you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.